Now, speaking of the word, let's open the word. Would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50 this morning? Also, would you, would you, Genesis 50 is where we're going to really plant, but just for the sake of uh, cross-reference, would you also open to Hebrews, because there is just a statement made in Hebrews that may be surprising to us, but has everything to do with our text this morning. So that's Hebrews 11.22. So we'll read that pretty quickly this morning. If you have been, uh, not if you're visiting with us today, we've been doing an Advent series. And in the minds of some people, Advent ends with Christmas Day. Um, but you've you got to remember that Advent means the coming or the arrival. And the focus of the first four weeks of Advent are on the first coming of Christ. That's great. That's wonderful. But as we know, Christ promised he would come again to fully and finally establish his kingdom and raise us up into the true promised land of the new heavens and the new earth and to dwell with us forever. And y'all, just as we have seen that the book of Genesis foreshadowed the first coming of Christ, that's what we called it Christmas from the beginning, we're going to learn also today that the book of Genesis also foreshadows the second coming of Christ. And I hope you're excited about hearing how, that, how that's going to be. I was excited to discover how that's going to be as well as I was studying. And so our last sermon of the series is focusing on his second coming and how both the first and second coming of Christ should affect how we live today. Not just the first coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ. And can I give a thought to parents for the future? You know, there's so many things, you know, I've got, oh, I wish I would have known that. Oh, I wish I would have known that. If I, if I was doing parenting now, what would, how would I have done it differently? I would not have just made a big deal about Christmas Day. I would have used New Year's as a day to talk about the second coming of Christ. And I would have done something with that. I would have done, I would have taken the kids to the mountains or go, to, go over to the White Sands or go over to Monahid Sand Dunes or, dunes or go down to the hill country or go someplace pretty. <laughs> um, and talk about, talk about the new heaven and the new earth. Imagine if this looks like this. Can you imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. I, I just think we're, we, I just, we make such a big deal about the first coming, and we should because that provided forgiveness of our sins. But the second coming, I don't know that we're not going to go, oh man, way better, <laughs> way better, because we'll be done with sinning. We'll be done with death. We'll be done with Satan. I think we need to make a big deal of that. And I didn't make a big enough deal with my kids. And I, sh I sure want to do that as a pastor with the next generation now. But I want to encourage you, think about that. How, how are we going to celebrate Christmas? But let's use the new year to talk about the new heavens and the new earth and the second coming of Christ. So just a, th a thought to toss out to you there. Uh, as we read, as we read this morning, be looking for three themes in the text. The power of God's forgiveness. That's, that's huge. The faithfulness of God's providence, that's huge. And the focus on a future promise, that's huge as well. Would you stand with me as we read God's inerrant and inspired and sufficient word? Are, is your heart expectant that the living God wants to speak to you through his word today? Are you expecting that? Let's expect that God, by his spirit, will speak through his word as we begin reading Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt and he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And now just take, take, let's take that glance to Hebrews 11, verse 22. What, what, what many people have called the hall of faith. Well, Joseph is in it, but not the way you might have expected. Listen to what the writer to Hebrews says. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Oh, Heavenly Father, speak to us. God, please speak to us. God, there's so many in this room that have, are plagued with fear. So many that struggle with hopelessness. So many that wonder if The best part of their life is behind them, and now it's just hanging on. Oh, God, open our eyes, melt our hearts, replace fear with hope. May you receive all the glory for it, and ultimately, would you not just give this church joy, but would you make us a joy to the nations through the gospel? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever experienced what some people call the death of a dream? The death of a dream. I love watching It's a Wonderful Life. I think I tell you that every Christmas. Um, I still think, so many of the next generation, I'm amazed how many people say, oh, don't you love It's a Wonderful Life? And they go, what is, they don't even know that that exists. And so I just think we we ought to have a watch party. I think we need a watch party. Anyway, um, I read an article this year about It's a Wonderful Life that explained why men in particular resonate with the movie. It's that so many men fear that their life is passing away and that they're going to die without their life making any real difference in the world. Maybe, i got to be honest with you, I think that's one of the reasons why I just, I constantly watch it because I constantly fear that. I struggle with that. Like George Bailey, they fear that the dream they had for their life to have meaning had either died, or do you ever feel like, well, it hasn't died, but it's on life support. But the fear of the death of a dream is not just a guy thing, is it? Not just a guy thing. How many of us have feared that the, the, the dream of being a starter on your ball team looks like it's fading away, and you're almost going to graduate? How about the dream of getting into the college that you thought held the key to your future, and that was gone? Or the dream of getting married. How about that dream? Or maybe your dream was to have kids. But year after year passes with negative results in the pregnancy test. You've been working for years and the dream of the career you hope for, fading away. 
You thought you would have been serving in a certain ministry or mission by now. There was a prema- what we would call a premature death. A child died. A spouse died. And it seems like the dream stops. I don't know about you, but I feel like multiple dreams. Things that I thought God wanted for me seemed to die one after the other in my life. I wanted to be a pastor since college, but no doors open for that. And I took a job with Shell Oil in New Orleans. And when I did, I had a Christian mentor who, who, said, who cut me off. He cut me off. He called me Esau. And he said, you're selling out your calling for money the way Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew. Man, that, that hurt. I didn't think I was selling out for money. I was the last in my circle of friends to be married. Jan and I wanted to have kids, but it would be years before kids would be born. (laughs) But God, but God. Do you know how the door opened for me to move into pastoral ministry? It was never anything I dreamed. Our senior pastor at the church that I was at in New Orleans seemed to not even know I existed. And then we get a phone call from him. He said, can I come over to the house? Yeah. I don't know why you want to. You don't even like me. (laughs) I am such an Eeyore, guys. I am (laughs) Billy Eeyore Rays. That's maybe, may as well be my name. He comes over and you can tell he's, he's pretty bothered. There's something. He said, have you ever thought of being a pastor? Don't you want to just, you're just now knowing that? He says, God gave me a dream last night that you were a pastor. Leave it up to God. (laughs) Right? Isn't that what I need to do? Leave it up to God in the most unexpected way. God gave us a prophetic word that we would have our child, our firstborn. And nine months to the day that that word was given, our firstborn son, Will, was born. Nine months from that word. I fought with so many fears, so much grumbling, so many temptations to give up, so much pouting and apathy. That's another ugly thing in my life is when I'm not getting what I want, I get apathetic. So much temptation to give up or to try to make something happen on my own or to settle for something less. Any settlers here? I'll just, yes, I just need to settle. Does it mean that the plans that God has for our lives have died? Just because we find ourselves, in the words of John Piper, in unplanned places? I mean, an unplanned place. It must not, God's promise and dreams must have died. Because I'm in an unplanned place. How about this? Does it mean God's promises have failed just because we're moving at an unplanned pace? Things aren't going as fast as I thought they would. They're going way slower than I ever dreamed. Does it mean that God's plan and promises have died because we're experiencing unplanned pain? I think those three things jump in our faces and try to control our thinking to think that we have no future. Maybe even God has let us down. I think that the the message this morning is not merely an end to our Advent sermon series. I believe that the Holy Spirit intends for this morning's message to be a means of God's grace to prepare us for what could be a very challenging year in 2024. Personally, I think it could be, this isn't like pessimism. I think this is God saying, I got this, and I want to prepare you for it. Challenging year personally. I think it could be a challenging year for us as a church family. I think it could be a challenging year for us nationally. I think it will be a challenging year internationally. That's not because I'm some prophet. I just read the newspaper. Our main point this morning is this. When fears arise, fear not. For God's faithful providence will accomplish God's future promises. When fears arise, and all of us are going to, we're going to come to places, 
Fear is going to rise up. It might happen this afternoon. Fear not. God's faithful providence. I love the way the Puritans defined it. It's his fatherly sovereignty. Sometimes we think of sovereignty as he's just in control, like some sterile, uncaring force. No, he's a father. And he loves you. And he loves you. And he's fatherly in his sovereignty for us. And his faithful, fatherly providence will accomplish his future promises. Amen. <laughs> okay, we'll work on that. Here's a background. First, let me give you just a flyover of Joseph's life as seen through God's providence. Because it would have been so easy for God's people in, in the time, as, the, as Genesis unfolds, as the chronology of Genesis unfolds, it would be so easy for them to believe in the death of God's promises. After all, what started in Eden is ending in Egypt. Who would have thought that? What started as a perfect creation is ending in a coffin. That is until we study the life of Joseph. And I want to encourage you, would you do yourself a favor and over this next week, read Genesis 37 through 50. You will be glad you did. Joseph is a wonderful example of someone who would have had every right to believe that the dream God had given him to one day be something of a servant king. Look at those two phrases. A servant king had died. And not only did it feel like the dream had died, Joseph became the victim of untold trauma. Do you know that trauma is one of the most used words now in, our, in the English language? And, and rightfully so in many, many ways. But be, be listening for how people use the word trauma because it'll tell you a lot about their worldview. Our worldview really shapes how we define words, don't we? Uh, so there's genuine, legitimate trauma that, that is physical and hurtful. And it's a scar that seems to have present influence. You ever feel like you have a scar from the past that continues to influence the present? I think that, that's kind of how trauma feels. Well, Joseph knew what trauma is. And we need, guys, the way the world is going, I think there's going to be more trauma in the world. How can there not be when there's so much hate in the world? How can there not be that even in churches, where churches are unforgiving and sterile and harsh, even in church, people have been traumatized. Joseph became the victim of untold trauma, pain, loneliness, and sorrow. And much of the pain and sorrow came at the hands of the abuse he suffered from his own family. Little did Joseph know that not only did the dream not die because he was in an unplanned place, <laughs> right? He was experiencing unplanned, unplanned pain, and his life was moving at an unplanned pace. Place, pace, and pain. But that God was actually using his life for us to be a wonderful foreshadowing of the Savior who would come and be a suffering servant king that would crush the serpent's head and set the prisoners free. Did you know Joseph was like Jesus? He could be a foreshadowing remind us of Jesus and that he was the object of his father's special love, wasn't he? Through a dream, God had promised some form of divinely ordained exaltation, though it would come after suffering. And I don't know that Joseph, when he saw the dream, he saw the exaltation, but he didn't see the suffering. By the way, and this is in your notes, a dream God gives or a promise he makes will never die. What must die is how we misinterpret or misapply the dream or promise to our lives or how we plan our own way of trying to make it happen. If God gives you a promise, and we actually had a guest last week, very interesting, it was great, great feedback for me. He said, do you think that, what you were talking a lot about the promises of God. He said, do you think prosperity teaching and preaching has caused a lot of Christians who don't read much of their Bible 
to think God has promised them things that God has never promised them. I said, I wish you would have come up and told me that when I was preaching. I could have used that. I could have, that would have been a very helpful thing. God's promises will never fail. The dream that God gives will never die. But we have to die to our own definition of how it should happen. Like Jesus, he was sent to his own brothers, but they received him not. And they mocked him and rejected him and beat him. Wow, there's a lot of similarities here. He was sold by those who should have loved him for pieces of silver. Wow. He was stripped of his robe. He was delivered up to the Gentiles. Though he was horribly tempted to commit adultery again and again by Potiphar's wife, he sinned not. He was falsely accused. He was thrown into a prison that may as well have been good as death. It was really a death sentence. He was miraculously raised up out of that deadly prison and seated at the right hand of the king of Egypt. His wisdom led many people, mainly Gentiles at first, to being saved from death from the fam- through the famine. And in spite of their evil abuse, God uses his life to even save his rebellious brothers, his evil, sinning, hateful brothers from death. Wow. You know, we can either look at Joseph's life as a life of pain and trauma or a life of providence and triumph. I say that, let me ask you, how do you look at your life? Do you tend to, listen, pain makes us so tunnel visioned. Pain makes us like, it's like blinders come up and I can't see anything else. I've used this before. We've talked about how, uh, well, use a cross, how the cross is so much bigger than my thumb. But if I close one eye and I put the thumb, I bring that thumb right up to my eye and my eyes open. Well, look, you, you are so much bigger than my thumb, but I can't see any of you right now. That's what pain does. That's what pain does. It, it, it just convinces us that this is the only thing that can happen, and this must be the story of my life, and this must be the future, and this is how my marriage is going to turn out, and this is because we're so focused on the pain and the, and the sorrow about it. And we need help. If you're not in Christian community, if you're not in gospel community, all of us need help getting the thumb out of our eye. All of us need help being able to see, oh, God is in control. He loves me. His plan hasn't failed. He's right with me in my tears and my sorrow. So we can either look at the pain and trauma of our life and interpret it because of our feelings Or we can look at the pain and sorrow and trauma of our life and interpret it by faith in God's providence. How are you interpreting your life today? Is it by loving providence or it's just by the feeling of pain and disappointment? Before we unpack the text, I want to make sure that before we learn lessons from Joseph's life, I think we can just too easily jump to that as preachers. Um... I think we first need to identify ourselves as having much more in common with Joseph's 11 evil brothers. We do that with David, don't we? We, Preachers, oh, David, David, you need to be like David. You need to be like David. No, David was a picture of the Savior. David was a picture of how much we needed a deliverer. That's who David primarily was in the storyline. We were all the scared Israelites. That's who we are. Who, 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 are, who know that death is sure unless someone saves us from death, i.e. David. And it's be so easy for us to just go, oh, let's be like Joseph, be like Joseph. And there's so much to learn from Joseph's life, and we will in just a minute. But we are first so much like those brothers. We're jealous, we're covetous. We want our own way, we want our own things when, right, when we want it. We'll use people to get what we want. We'll manipulate. We'll control. We have way more in common with them. And we need someone like a Joseph to rescue us, don't we? So let's keep that in mind as we then still start learning to apply some things from Joseph's life. Okay? So here's three takeaways from the text. The first one is God's forgiving power. And we see that in Genesis 50, verses 15 through 19. 
Verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You see, Joseph's brothers, I mean, when you hear of Hamas, I mean, I've almost come to think Hamas human shields. It's just terrible. The evil of people's hearts to use innocent women and children as, as, as a protection against people with a conscience trying to do, do, you know, bring freedom and restoration and those kind of things. Well, this concept of a human shield is not just a current thing. In a spiritual way, in a fleshly way, Joseph's brothers thought Jacob was a human shield. And the only reason Joseph wasn't taking revenge out on them was because dad was alive. And he really loved dad. But, ooh, dad's dead. Dad's dead. But you know, the real problem is that they didn't believe Joseph had forgiven them. Do you know how long it was? 17 years earlier. Joseph had forgiven them. He forgave them. He had forgiven them genuinely. And they had 17 years of evidence of that forgiveness. We'll talk about that in a little bit. That was in, that was in Genesis 15 compared to where we now are now in Genesis 50. And Joseph seemed to know that his forgiveness of them was not merely to be experienced by them, but that his forgiveness would be one of the ways that God would keep his promise to preserve the seed of Abraham all the way to Jesus. Isn't it interesting? The role that forgiveness plays in advancing the kingdom of God. We, I, guys, there's, I, I feel like this as a pastor, I feel like, oh my goodness, I'm learning things way too late. I'm sorry. As, uh, Jerry Bridges, I had a chance to have a little conversation with him. He's written some great books. If you, have never, if you want to read some great books on God's grace, read Jerry Bridges. And uh, I asked him, you know, you know, Mr. Bridges, how can I pray for you? And he says, oh, Billy, he was probably in his 80s. He said, he said this phrase, so soon old, so late smart. <laughs> That's what I feel. I'm sorry that, that sometimes you get the brunt of my being so late smart. Oh. It's amazing how powerful forgiveness is, not just to make a happy family, not just to give you a better sense of yourself. Forgiveness is a power that is intended to change generations. And you'll see that in a minute. I'll explain that in a minute. So Joseph was forgiving them with a view toward the promise that God would have a growing people to himself. So now Jacob is dead and fear and guilt are rising up and that you, you can now tell what's been controlling them for 17 years. Fear and guilt are powerful things. And if, you're, if, you, if you know anything about it, it can rule and even ruin your lives. I think there's so many things that marriage, marriage problems, parenting problems, so much of that is because there's these dark shadows of guilt and fear. And you're already struggling with that and somehow that comes in between the people you're trying to relate to. But let's now watch how much more powerful God's forgiveness is than the worst guilt and fear that we could have. Verse 16 and 17, so they send a messenger to Joseph. Guys, they wouldn't even come talk to him face to face. You ever do that? I used to do that when I'd like a girl. <laughs> so silly. Hey, can you go tell somebody? Go ask, are they dating anybody? Can you slip in some kind of way that Billy was talking about them? Well, that's just teenage hoo-ha. These guys can't even go face-to-face -to, -face to have a meeting with him. They send a messenger. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants as the God of your father. Now, this is some, let's point out some good things. We don't know if, jo if Jacob ever said that. There's some commentators that, th that say it's not really clear in Scripture that Jacob ever knew that the brothers did what they did to Joseph. 
That'd be like Joseph, wouldn't it? You know, if, oh man, it'd be like me. I'd, hey, Dad, you know those other 11? Let me tell you why this whole thing happened. Not jo- I don't think Joseph would have done that. I think he would have kept his dad from that heartache. Anyway, that's just an opinion. It's good that they are, they, they're using words like transgression, sin, and evil. Did you notice that? Do you ever use those words talking about your own heart? Sin, transgression, and evil. They're not using words like mistake or accident or it was, the man, it was that person that made me do it. Transgression is equal to, it's, 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 it's a, another word for it would be trespassing. You know what trespassing is. You're crossing a pre-existing, well-defined line that you were never supposed to cross. You knew what was right to do and you, you still did wrong anyway. Knowing there was a line, you crossed it. That's called the sin of commission. But that's not the only sin we commit. He, he also used the, word, he would, used the word transgression, but he did use the word sin. Sin means missing the mark. If you were in an archery competition, if any of you guys are archers, um, and you would pull back the bow and you'd let the arrow fly and, and you wouldn't hit the bullseye. If you didn't hit the bullseye, do you know what they would say? Sin! Don't you want to play that game? <laughs> but that's what, what are they saying? You fell short. You missed the mark. It's really saying there's sins of omission. There's sins that we didn't do that we should have done. We missed the mark. Any guilty people here besides me? I'm a, I'm a sinner of committing sins that I know what was right to do and I did it anyway. I'm a sinner because there were things I knew to do and I didn't do them. And I deserved an eternal weight of judgment for it all. Thank God he was rich in mercy and sent me someone way better than Joseph to rescue me from my sins named Jesus. They're pleading for forgiveness and Joseph weeps. When someone has apologized to you, have you ever wept? Not because of the pain you suffered, but because of what they're going through in being a slave to sin and guilt and condemnation. You know, this is the seventh time that Joseph weeps in those, in those chapters between 37 and 50. The word weep is not just a little tear trickling down your face because you watched a Hallmark movie. It's not, it's not that. It means ugly crying. For a man, I call it booger crying. I'm sorry, that's gross. But it's, it's, it's that you are, so, there's something that's hitting you so deeply that it's, it's bringing out this flow of moisture, not just from your eyes. And Moses, he never says that Joseph wept when his brothers beat him. He never says that he wept when he was trafficked into slavery. He never wept when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison. He never wept when a fellow prisoner promised to put a good word into him with Pharaoh and he forgot him. What a life. Joseph wept when he saw his abusive, traumatizing brothers for the first time. Joseph wept when he saw his beloved brother Benjamin For the first time, he wept when he reveals his true identity to his brothers as being their brother. He weeps the first time he communicates his forgiveness and care in Genesis 45. He weeps when he's reunited with his dad, Jacob, and when Jacob dies. And he weeps here when he hears that his brothers were still ruled by fear and guilt and condemnation and not experiencing the forgiveness he declared to them 17 years earlier. These guys were like the prodigal son. Did you see that? They said, treat us as your servants. They didn't say, hey, we're your bros. He didn't do that. We'll do, give us the worst jobs. We, we put us in the, whatever the worst jobs in Egypt are. We don't deserve to be called your brother. It's very much a prodigal son kind of a thing that maybe I can do something to make up for what I did wrong to you. But guys, don't we know what this feels like? You know Christ has forgiven you intellectually, but then you doubt it. 
or you go through a hard time and you think God's out to get me because I'm going through a hard time. Maybe God didn't forgive me. Or you need to do something to pay the price for your sins yourself in order to be forgiven. Oh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ died when you were in full-blown rebellion toward him. That's how he died for our sins. Oh, you guys, how much more merciful he'll be when you're his son or daughter and you still continue to struggle with sins. He's merciful. This is in your notes, Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious. So think, whoever here has been more aware of your guilt and shame and condemnation than you've been aware of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, hear the Lord. The Lord's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as from the east, from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So in verse 19, Joseph says, so guys, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I've forgiven you. I'm not seeking vengeance. Now, this is, this, see if this hits you the way it hit me. Am I in the place of God? It, it, it was very clear to Joseph that only God is God. It sounds like a dust statement, but we constantly seem to be trying to push him off the throne and put ourselves on it. Only God can bring true justice and perfectly punish evil. Do you believe that? Your bitterness is not going to accomplish anything but making you sick. Only God can bring true justice and perfectly punish evil. Your bitterness is not contributing. Forgiving others does not mean evil is okay either. That doesn't mean that. It means that we're trusting God to provide perfect justice and punishment for evil. And it also means that if, if what was done to you was criminal, we will avail ourselves of the ministry of the government and the jail system. If it's an ongoing sin that is hurting others, we will seek the righting of wrong through church discipline. But we will not withhold forgiveness or try to get our revenge. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? This is a temptation because one of the consequences of the fall was that we, we now have the right and wisdom to call the shots to determine ourselves what is right and wrong, and to punish whoever we want, whenever we want, as much as we want, because we're in the place of God. And that's exactly what happens when we choose not to forgive. Have you ever thought of unforgiveness this way? You're putting yourself in the place of God. I'll bring justice. You'll earn your forgiveness with me. You have to feel bad enough and maybe then I'll consider forgiving you. Are you in the place of God? How about God treat you like that? Where will you end up? Burning in hell. If that's the way of salvation, then none of us have any hope of doing but God is rich in mercy. And he wants us to be rich in mercy. So Joseph weeps and he gives assurance of his forgiveness by pledging his ongoing compassion and care for them and to try to help them become right with God. Joseph not only chooses acts of forgiveness, I think this is what we've not served the church well either, did you know that God doesn't want you just to do forgiving things, just make forgiving choices? Did you know, did you know, did you know? He wants to make us forgivers, not just now, oh, we'll choose now and then to forgive. No, no, he wants to make our character a character of forgiveness. You know why I know that? Do you know what Joseph named his kids? Joseph named his kids his testimony. So the firstborn is named Manasseh. Sounds like a funny name at first, but it means to forget. Wouldn't you love that name as a kid? 
Hey, forget. <laughs> Dad, do you want, are you trying to forget me? No, I'm not trying to forget you. I'm, it's my testimony. What, do, what does it mean? Because then he, he explains it. For God has caused me to forget all the trouble from my father's house. He wasn't victimized. He was traumatized. But trauma didn't define him. God's mercy defined him. God's grace defined him. God's providence defined him. And so Manasseh, every time he sees his son, oh God, thank you. You've helped me forgive and forget. What does that mean? Does it mean like you get hit with a rock and you get amnesia and I can't remember what you did to me? No. <clears throat> it means that you know what the other person did, but you choose not to remember it against them. And that's what Joseph was. He was a forgiver. I don't want to just do forgiveness. I want to be a forgiver, don't you? I think that'll shine like a light to the world. It'll sure shine like a light to my wife. It'll sure shine like a light to my kids and grandkids. I want to be a forgiver. And then the other one was Ephraim means doubly blessed. And he says, because God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I've learned to be content wherever I am. It's really kind of what he's saying. It doesn't matter. I may be in the worst place, the most unexpected place, and God may be fruitful in the land of my affliction. The forgiveness of God and our forgiving others in his name. Here's what I want you to see about how powerful forgiveness is. It advances God's purposes. Forgiving others as we've been forgiven is, you want to be Christ-like? One of the most Christ-like things you'll ever do is forgive. Not the way the world does it. The, the radical way God does it in Christ. He absorbs the, the consequences. I, I think it's Tim Keller that I heard use this illustration of a, a family with a little kid. They go into a store and, and the child is playing and, and, and unintentionally he breaks something that was breakable and the parents go, okay, well, so they bring it up to the, the store owner and they say, hey, listen, we're, we, we're sorry, our son broke this. We need to pay for it. And the store owner says, oh, that's okay. That's okay. Don't worry about it. So does that mean no one had to pay? Someone had to pay. And the store owner, to set them free, the store owner absorbed the consequence himself. Does that sound like someone we know? Is that what Jesus did? Jesus absorbed the consequence himself. You know why we can do that? Because we have abundant life in Christ Jesus. What will, what will keep you free is forgiving. We are so free that we can forgive and even absorb what was done to us in pursuit of that person seeing a clear representation of Christ through me. That's freedom. What will put you in bondage is not forgiving and putting yourself in the, in the place of God. Well, here's how this power is powerful. It, this, this changes families and legacies. So follow the, the redemptive line. Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers led to the birth of the nation of Israel. Some people call Israel the womb that the nation of Israel grew in. Did you ever think about that? Wow, that's really, that's true. Joseph's forgiveness of the 11 led to 3 million that were saved and, and kept. And God's people, he had, his, he had his seed, didn't he? He had his people. The nation of Israel leads to the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus led to you and me being born again. You don't think forgiveness is powerful? How many of your family stories are stories of bitter family division and hatred and separation? What would biblical forgiveness do in breaking that curse? But it wasn't just the power of forgiveness that we need, but also the faithfulness of God's providence. And that's in 20 and 21. Uh, Ephesians 2, we all love that passage. It says, but God, right, is rich in mercy. We're horrible sinners, but God is rich in mercy. This starts off with, but Joseph. <laughs> I love that in verse 20. How did Joseph not seek revenge? Why did he see forgiving others as a way of living in true freedom? Well, it was because he trusted in the providence of God. As for you, look at verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
In chapter, in, verse, in chapter 45, he put it this way. You sold me into slavery. God sent me here. <laughs> I love that. How many of us are still blaming the people of our past? And we're still saying, I would be a different person if it wasn't for what I re received from them and how I was hurt from them. And that doesn't mean that, that Joseph wasn't hurt. But he's, as he's looking at the panorama of his life, you sold me into slavery. God sent me to save people. Which you intended for evil. God intended for good. The Heidelberg Catechism puts, defines providence this way. It's in your notes. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures. And he so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance. Say those last words with me. But from his fatherly hand. <clears throat> Here's a little, little ditty. Would you follow this in your notes? When you understand and trust in the providence of God in the midst of your sufferings, it will change everything. It will change your heart first. It will protect you from committing your own sin and evil against each other in retribution. It will protect you from bitterness. I don't know that we're giving that counsel enough to people. It's not just forgive. It's not just forgive. It's what you believe. Do you believe that God is providential? That belief will protect you from bitterness. It will keep you from defining your life as being an addict or abused or depressed or divorced. It will keep you from allowing your identity of mainly being a victim of trauma or trouble or trial. Providence protects your identity as being a beloved, accepted, and forgiven child of God. It gives an unquenchable hope that God's perfect purposes for our lives will come to pass. That's providence. Oh, that's why we're going to sing what we sing at the conclusion of the service. Guys, you understand he's Roman eight, Romans 8.28-ing them here. Do you understand that? That God is working all things for our good. Not, not saying all things are good. God is using all things, good and evil, for good. Define good. Godly good. God's allegiance to you is to make you more like Christ, not to make you more like our culture. Not to be a happy version of our culture. He wants to make us more like Christ. And that's his allegiance. And he uses good and hard. And he mixes it together. I did this thing with the kids. I'll do this sometime with the, for a kid's sermon. We made chocolate chip cookies. Hey, kids, come on. I'm going to make chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, I love chocolate chip cookies. And I'd get all the ingredients out. And I'd, I'd break an egg. And I'd say, okay, we got to have an egg to have chocolate chip cookies. Drink it. And my kids, of course, my kids thought I was crazy 24-7, particularly at this moment. And, Dad, yes, yes, yes. Well, yeah, because drinking an egg could make you sick by itself. Interesting. interesting. How about some flour? How about, like, come on, come on, put that flour in your mouth. Will, Micah, Josh, they're all grossing out. No, Dad, that'll make us sick. Oh, yeah, by itself, it'll make you sick. But isn't it amazing that a goober head like Dad can follow a recipe and take stuff that could make me sick by itself and really sweet things that if I take too much of it, <laughs> that could make me sick too. But we can mix it together and it comes out good. Well, if a goober like dad can produce a chocolate chip cookie, how about an all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving God bring forth good out of all that you've suffered both the, the, the pain as well as the pleasure. He, he says that it's evil. He doesn't back away from that. I think people get nervous because we're not... That, what about the evil, though? What about the evil? <laughs> he agrees that it was evil, which just accentuates how amazing his forgiveness is. He's setting the stage that, it, that for, for us to know evil is never in control. 
I don't care what happens with the election, evil is never in control. Hamas is not in control. Israel is not in control. Our mistakes when we raise our kids are not in control. Parents ought to be going, ha, hallelujah. God's grace is in control. God's purposes are in control. His providence is accomplishing his future promises. So it's making us more like Christ. God used the evil of of the brothers to position Joseph to be an instrument of salvation to both Gentiles and Jews. He wants to do the same thing with us. Where we are right now, if, if we'll get our eyes lifted up and see his smiling face, you are where you are right now in this church, in Midland, Texas, in your job, in your neighborhood, because there are people God wants to reach through you. That's what he's doing with providence. It took time to see it. So don't throw providence at somebody who's really hurting right away. That, that's like, that can be, actually add more pain. Let's weep with those who weep. Let's wait with those who wait. Christianity is walking together for a long time. That's really what it is. And, and we just let the devil play such games with us to divide us from each other. Just to give you some practicals. It was 13 years from when they sold Joseph in chapter 37 to when he was seated in power next to Pharaoh at 30. In Genesis 45, there had been nine more years, seven years of plenty, two years of famine. So in chapter 45, when Joseph is talking about God's providence, he's 39 years old, 22 years had passed. These are lessons that we learn day by day, and they become more clear and more treasured over a lifetime. But we have someone better than Joseph, don't we? Our Savior. The greatest evils of the world, both on earth and from hell, were flung against him. And what evil intended for its own purposes, God intended for good, that you and I could be sitting here today as believing sons and daughters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's providence, precious ones. And if we lose sight of that, I think we're not going to experience as much of the cross as we should. So he comforts them and he promises. Not, it wasn't just, just, just this kind of one and done. I'll forgive you and now I don't want to think about you ever again. Talk to the hand kind of thing. You know, it's not a one and done. He says, I'm going to prove my forgiveness of you and I'm going to continue to care that you know God in the way that God wants you to know him. That you be right with God. And so as you finish reading that text, it's amazing. He promises to care for them as long as he lives and he did. He did. Ed Welch put it this way. When we encounter sufferers in scripture, it's as if they come alongside us take us by the hand and lead us into truths that are deeper than our suffering. Oh, isn't that so good? Can God please make our church like that? When, when anyone is suffering in our church, help us to go hold a hand and, and let us go back to Scripture and learn truths that are deeper than our suffering is. God's future promises, so you'll probably wonder, okay, where's the second coming in all this? And we'll go through this pretty quickly. How do we see the second coming? Well, Joseph says, I'm about to die. But his focus is not on the dreams he had, not on his sorrows, not on his rise to power or his successes uh, when the story of his life is about to be finished. Joseph's focus was on the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 15. The unilateral covenant where God said, I'll keep my promises and I'll die to pay the price for your breaking the covenant. Uh, So there was the blood right there. But he also promised that God would give them a special place and a special land with him as their Lord. But he wasn't just talking about Canaan. He was talking about something more. His focus was on God's promise to bring people into a promised land. And in the face of death, Joseph still believed that. Death is an enemy, but it didn't defeat Joseph. God's promise, he believed it. And so he said, take my bones, 
And, and when God delivers you, when he visits with the Exodus, so it's going to be 400 years. 400 years from now, take my bones with you to the promised land that God committed himself to give us. But was it just because he's sentimental? We have some grave plots out in Los Angeles. At, it's like at the cemetery, my aunt, they live out there. It's at, uh, what is it called, honey? Forest Lawn. It's the cemetery where a lot of movie stars are buried. <laughs> yeah, that's, I belong there, right? Oh, man. You know, we have family there. My grandparents are there. Um, my dad wanted his ashes spread in West Virginia. My mom is buried in Los Alamos, New Mexico. There's sentiment about those kind of things, but is Joseph just being sentimental? Hey, I just want to be in the family grave, in the, in the cemetery in Canaan. I just want to be with my family and my burial. No, 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 no. God's promise would not culminate in the nation of Israel being in the promised land of Canaan. And only those who got to live there a few years could enjoy it. Do you think, what kind of thing, deal would that be? No, no. God's promise was that everyone, both in the Old and New Testaments, Old and New Covenant, who believed on the Messiah would be ultimately raised from the dead when Christ returns a second time. And that we would all live in a much better promised land than Canaan, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the joyful presence of Jesus our Savior. And so they embalmed him, they put his body, the word is translated coffin, but the, the Hebrew scholars say it was more like an ark. Like, like Think of the Ark of the Covenant right? With handles and something to be carried and something that would draw attention to itself. Well, the bones of Joseph are in this ark. And what is the ark saying? There's a promised land to come. And, we, and, and it doesn't matter even if death visits you. The promise is still true. And God will raise every believer from old covenant to new covenant and to have resurrection life a new glorified body to live in the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of a smiling Savior named Jesus. Oh, isn't that so good for us, guys? That's why Hebrews 11.22 says, of all the things that Joseph could have been said he had faith for, it says at the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Because he was looking forward, just like you and I should be, to our eternal home. And that we should, we should be, guys, that should be compelling us to live faithful today. We have the blood that was shed for us on this side, the promise of eternal glory on this side. Oh God, make us faithful today. Make us forgivers like you've forgiven us. Help us to trust that no evil will for a second be in control. You're in control. And make us bold then in our witness for Christ. Not allowing suffering to stop us. Not allowing anything to stop us. Because heaven is our home. Worship team, would you guys come back, please? On the back page. So on the back page, do you have some song lyrics of your notes? I honestly think that, I don't mean, I'm not trying to get weird or spooky here. I honestly think God intends this message today to have something of a prophetic impact in our lives. You know, not being pessimistic or anything, just knowing we're living in a fallen world and that there's so much evidence and revelation that things get harder uh, more uh, before they get better. Now, at the same time, the people of God get brighter and brighter and more joyful and more joyful. So we're not just this victim to this horrible culture. No, God is, is, is wanting to fan into flame the fire of our love for him in the midst of the darkest of darknesses. So that's, that, that's going on. But I just think that there's something, would you stand with me? I just think there is something that God wants us to take away from this and and. And, I, and thank the Lord that William Cooper put it to music. So, so the team is going to sing this, but would you read this with me aloud? Let's read this together. It's called God Moves. Are you ready? God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. 
He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in his dark and hidden minds, with never-failing skill, he fashions all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. O fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Don't judge him by your emotions, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, oh, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. Oh, God is his own interpreter. 